Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for August 22, 2022. Here's today's rundown. The COVID-19 public health emergency compelled the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to loosen regulations to fund more telehealth services. These temporary policies may be extended. From New York, Rack Monitor investigative reporter Edward Roach has an exclusive report on the future of telehealth and its 122-year history. We'll also hear from Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Tiffany Ferguson, Matthew Albright, and healthcare attorney David Glazer. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, the death toll from the deadly coronavirus is slightly more than 1 million. Also, kids returning to school this fall could receive the Novax drug against COVID-19. The Food and Drug Administration on Friday authorized the use of Novavax. Meanwhile, we have much news to report this morning, and we begin, as we always do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. There's good news on the COVID-19 public health emergency front. We now know the PHE will remain in effect at least until January 2023. But CMS scared us last week by publishing a roadmap to end the PHE. Some thought this was their promised 60-day notice that the PHE would end in October, but this notice was simply an update of the many CMS COVID-19 documents, such as the listing of the waivers with some added information on what will happen when the PHE does end. Be sure your compliance team has seen this document and can continue to use the COVID-19 waivers for another few months. And speaking of waivers, I heard something very distressing last week. Now, let me first say this, I have no confirmation, so I'm really hoping this is not true. But I heard that some nursing facilities were taking some of their long-term patients and moving them to their skilled units and admitting them under Part A simply to get the Part A payment from Medicare. With the waiver, all they had to do was place the DR modifier on the claim and it would be paid. Now, this is obviously fraud and should not be tolerated. If you know of any facilities that are doing this, report them to the OIG fraud hotline, and I certainly hope these cheaters are caught and punished. In better news, you may have heard that the Food and Drug Administration will now allow hearing aids to be sold over the counter and online. This is welcome news to the many with hearing loss, as these devices can be very expensive. Now, the final rule is 200 pages, so manufacturers will need to review that carefully and be sure their devices and their marketing meets the FDA standards. And my wife is wondering if she will be able to get me one that will treat what she says is my selective hearing. And in the same arena, in the OPPS proposed rule, CMS is proposing to pay for some routine dental care. Now, it would be great if they covered dental care for all Medicare beneficiaries, but their proposal is to only cover it when the dental care is, as they describe, inextricably linked to and substantially related to and integral to the clinical success of other Medicare covered medical procedures. In layman's term, that means they'll pay for it prior to a patient having a joint replacement or valve replacement or a transplant. Still good news. Finally, starting January 1st, CMS is eliminating all certificates of medical necessity. 
They're required now for some durable medical equipment and oxygen, and physicians universally hate them. So this should become, come as a welcome relief. But I suspect the DME and oxygen companies won't be as excited since they can use this certificate as documented proof that the equipment was medically necessary. If a doctor just writes an oxygen order on a prescription pad, as will be allowed, the supplier is going to be less certain the patient actually meets the requirements. And if audited, they're the ones that won't get paid, not the doctor. That's all for today, Chuck. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. How many times have we panelists talked about COVID and COVID exceptions to the regulatory rules? How many times have we warned providers that the exceptions will expire at the end of the public health emergency, or PHE? Well, it's coming. Like Dr. Hirsch said, the COVID PHE is still in effect for America, but a lot of states have lifted their PHE status. For example, North Carolina's state of emergency expired August 15, 2022. In Montana, it, the state of emergency ended June 30, 2021. So what does this mean? When America's PHE expires, so does all the exceptions. When your particular state PHE ends, so do the PHE exceptions your particular state allowed for Medicaid. This is imperative to all Medicare and Medicaid audits by whatever alphabet soup is knocking on your door. As well as you know, auditors don't always get it right. So add in the confusion due to COVID exceptions, which apply in which state and which, which expired and which hasn't expired, well, thankfully, last week, CMS released fact sheets summarizing the current status of Medicare and Medicaid COVID waivers and exceptions by provider type. The fact sheets include information about which waivers and which flexibilities have already been terminated, which ones have been made permanent or will end at the end of PHE. Unless specifically stated, all exceptions expire at the end of PHE, which is in the process of winding down. So I decided to review a fact sheet to determine how useful it was, and I chose for provider type, hospitals. The fact sheet is entitled Hospitals and Critical Access Hospitals, including swing beds, CPUs, ASCs, and CMHCs. It is 28 pages. The fact sheet are must-reads for all providers. When you play chess, the rules matter. When you accept Medicare and or Medicaid, the rules matter. And these fact sheets are the rules. The fact sheets, they, this particular one uh, covered telehealth and reimbursement rates. It also covered hospitals without walls, uh, off-site patient screening, paperwork requirements, physical environment requirements. It went into depth onto which waivers will or will not expire at the end of PHE and much, much more. I would say that these fact sheets for whichever type of provider you are, are mandatory reads. 
the fact sheets may not be absolutely encompassing, but they are good summaries for you, all in one spot, organized for ease of reading. So thank you, CMS, for gathering this info and putting it in one spot. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, Matthew Albright, and Rack Monitor investigative reporter Ed Roach. He is standing by in New York City to report our lead story this morning, The Perils of Fraud and Abuse of Telehealth. This is Monday, it's August the 22nd, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. The American College of Physician Advisors is the only physician-led nonprofit national association of thought leaders representing all aspects of the physician advisor role. Developed to expand the influence of physician advisors through education and industry networking, the membership consists of physician advisors and other hospital leaders focused on a broad range of topics, including utilization management, case management, clinical documentation integrity, regulatory compliance, revenue cycle, and executive leadership. You're invited to partner with physician leaders and associated healthcare professionals and join their effort to foster greater physician executive influence within healthcare systems. Access uniquely formatted Medicare inpatient-only lists designed for ease of use, the results of their latest physician advisor survey, and take advantage of CME discounts available only to members. Click on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to learn more. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report, it's healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. David, as I say every Monday morning about this time, what could be risky today? Well, Chuck, it's the risk of using common sense in a highly regulated environment. Last week, I was working with a client to help them understand incident two billing. We were discussing a situation where the physician and a physician assistant had each seen a patient as part of a visit in the clinic. The clinic administrator referred to it as a shared visit. Now, I totally get where she's coming from. The physician and the non-physician practitioner each did part of this clinic encounter. It certainly sounds like a shared visit, but it's not. Why? Because CMS has issued, when, when CMS issued the regulation creating shared visits, They defined the term shared visit in a very narrow and specific way. It only applies in settings where the incident two rules can't be used. Shared visits were created because there are limits on where incident two billing applies. 42 CFR 411.15 prevents the use of incident two billing in the inpatient or outpatient hospital setting. And actually, the incident two rule itself, 42 CFR 410.26b, says incident two services have to be furnished in a non-institutional setting to non-institutional patients. So in the clinic, you can use incident two billing. But in a facility like a hospital or a skilled nursing facility, a professional may not bill for services incident to their work. Now, in a terribly confusing twist, many hospital services are covered as incident two. Um, But there, it's the hospital rather than the professional who's billing. And just confusing wording, but we're talking here about a professional billing for Incident 2 services. Now, when CMS issued 42 CFR 415.140, which are the shared visit regulation that took effect on January 1st of this year as part of the fee schedule, 
It defined a split or shared visit as an evaluation and management visit in the facility setting. The bottom line is that split and shared visits are for facilities, and any visit occurring in a clinic is by definition not a split or shared visit. A physician and NPP can share work in a clinic, but for Medicare purposes, it's not a shared visit. That means none of the requirements for a shared visit, including billing under the person who did the substantive portion of the exam, apply in the clinic. Now, on a somewhat related note, in non-pandemic times, to bill incident to in the clinic setting, the supervising physician must be present in the office suite. It's easy to forget that during the public health emergency, CMS allows the supervising physician to be off-site as long as they're available through technology that includes both audio and visual capabilities. So during the PHE, as long as the supervising physician has a smartphone, they can be literally any place in the country and still be supervising the service. Now, I almost said they could be literally any place in the world, and I think that might arguably be true, but since Medicare excludes coverage for services provided outside the United States, I probably wouldn't risk having my supervising physician be abroad. Now, if we want to get into an interesting rabbit hole, we could explore the fact that Medicare took the position that supervision isn't a service. As a result, if I had a situation where my supervising physician was abroad, uh, I would not be recommending a refund. It's a situation that I could defend I just wouldn't recommend creating the need for me to defend it. Now, many people are bothered when I recommend changing a practice prospectively, but indicate that a refund isn't necessary for the past. I'll talk about that more next week. Chuck, this is most definitely not the theme of Cameo's song, Word Up. But if you want to avoid a situation like the start of his video, which begins with, we've got the place surrounded, come out with your hands up, you will most certainly want to word up and pay careful attention to the esoteric regulatory definitions. Chuck, I'm going to go dial L for low, and I'm glad that you are not a sucker, DJ. Back to you. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredersen and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Tiffany. So, Tiffany, what do we need to know today about the social determinants of health? Yes. So, for day, today's segment, I'm going to report on a juicy JAMA article that came across my inbox recently. The article is a viewpoint, so just make note of that, published by Jorge Portuando from the Center of Innovations in Quality, Effectiveness, and Safety out of the VA Medical Center in Houston, Texas. Portuando and colleagues released their opinion piece July 29th titled Using Administrative Codes to Measure Healthcare Quality. The article will be linked um, in my, or the link will be available in my article out this week. The article questions the value or impact of using diagnosis and procedural codes to measure healthcare quality. This makes me think of our previous debate about the underutilization of SDUH Z codes and the requirement to fall within the list of diagnosis and procedural codes. However, Z codes have no quality or financial ties for reimbursement at this time, at least. 
In Portuando's discussion, he considers how directly tying diagnosis and procedural codes to value-based performance could create an opportunity to quote-unquote game the system. So hospitals could, can optimize their coding practices to maximize reimbursement or performance and quality-based initiatives. I would have to say I got a little defensive in my head reading this article, thinking this is not all hospitals, as we know that Medicare Advantage plans have also played their part in incentives to increase their patient RAF scores. In September 2021, the OIG released their findings on the subset on a subset of Medicare Advantage plans having suspicious behavior related to their health risk assessments and diagnosis coding which significantly increased their risk-adjusted payments they received from CMS. However, let's consider the question that if we continue to tie quality to reimbursement, are we artificially depicting the value of care we are delivering? Obviously, this kind of article and the OIG reports in the last couple of years regarding coding has raised some opinions. We know patients receiving hospital care are more likely are, likely are more complex and likely do have comorbid conditions. However, we also understand that public that the publicly reported incentives from CMS for quality programs and reimbursement programs have changed coding practices due to the documentation capture requirements. Thankfully, the report and others, such as publications from Commonwealth Fund, have asked CMS to consider a separation of quality data registries from the coding and procedural billing codes. Hospitals are already required to report a significant amount of quality data to CMS across a spectrum of clinical specialties and disease registries. Could these mechanisms be used in a more meaningful way than the administrative data used for billing purposes? So let's go back to the question to consider the consideration of SDUH. I propose a hypothetical question to our audience. Should we continue the route to re of reporting Z codes as a coding process in line with our current coding procedures, our SDOH codes, or should there be a separate means of capturing SDOH data? Keep it the same, create a new mechanism for SDOH data, or unsure. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management. And later in the broadcast, we're going to have the results of today's Monitor Money listener survey. But up next, the Monitor Money legislative update with Matthew Albright. The Monitor Monday legislative update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic health care payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Good morning. As per tradition with all administrations to release regulations just before the weekend or before the holiday weekend, the Biden administration released the final No Surprises Act regulation last Friday at 4 p.m. And this is not yet the final, final, final No Surprises Act rule. The administration has promised more. Friday's final rule was narrowly focused on just the arbitration process between payers and providers who might disagree with the reimbursement for a No Surprises Act out-of-network claim. That arbitration process is called the Independent Dispute Resolution Process, or IDR. And as we've talked about on this program, how the reimbursement is decided in the IDR process 
may have significant consequences, not just on all out-of-network claims, but also on provider contracts and on healthcare reimbursement more generally. So to Friday's rule, which concerned itself with only three issues. One, how the arbitrators or IDR entities should determine the best reimbursement for No Surprises Act claims. Two, what the written decisions from those IDR entities should say. And three, what needs to happen if a payer downcodes a submitted No Surprises Act claim to lower payment to the provider. First, under last year's No Surprises Act final rule, IDR entities were to assume or presume that the plan's median in-network rate was the appropriate or default rate, and providers would have to bring substantive substantive evidence that they deserve anything more than that median in-network rate. Now, a Texas district court threw that methodology out this past February, and on Friday, the final rule aligned with that Texas court's decision. The rule now says that all factors, seven in all, need to be considered and that the IDR entity should choose the reimbursement that best reflects the value of the healthcare service. Now, there were seven lawsuits brought by providers on precisely this issue. Those lawsuits were put on hold pending this rule. Ostensibly then, with the release of this rule, the providers have won and the American Hospital Association and others will ostensibly drop those lawsuits. However, the administration was a little, say, passive aggressive in Friday's rule on this subject because they are requiring that the IDR entities consider the plan's median in-network rate first before looking at other factors when considering appropriate reimbursement. It's a little like going to a car dealership and the car dealer says that you have to test drive this particular model before you get to shop or even look at any of the rest. In other words, the implication is that although the median in-network rate won't be the default rate, there is the idea that all other factors will be weighed against the median in-network rate, which serves as a kind of benchmark. So we'll have to see if the lawsuits are dropped or not. Second issue in the final rule, it broadened the information that should be in the IDR entity's written decisions for every IDR determination including what weight was given to the plan's median in-network rate. In other words, here's that car dealer asking you why you didn't like that first car. The third issue in the rule focused on downcoding, which was defined as payers changing the service code or modifiers when initially paying a No Surprises Act claim. Friday's rule requires plans to notify providers that they are downcoding and can include both the reason for that downcoding and what the median in-network rate would have been if they had not downcoded. Chuck, on Friday, the departments also released new FAQs, new guidance for parties to the IDR process, and a new report on how the IDR process is going. But we'll have to wait till next week to catch up on all of that. Back to you. Thank you, Matthew. That was Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. And coming up, the perils of fraud and abuse associated with telehealth. And standing by with our exclusive story is Rack Monitor Investigative Reporter Ed Roach. But now is the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday Listener Survey. Once again, here's Tiffany Ferguson. Thank you all. So let's take a look. So the question I asked was, should we continue the route of reporting Z-codes as a coding process in line with our current coding procedures? Or should we be doing a separate means for capturing that? Uh, The audience is actually kind of split. So we're at like 30% keep it the same, 
26% create a new mechanism. And if there's time at the end, we do have a comment from Elisa that I'd love to read out to the group on her proposal. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much for your survey. You are listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. It's time to prepare your case management and utilization review teams for a successful implementation of changes in the 2023 Inpatient Prospective Payment System, the IPPS, IPS. Gain a solid understanding of the 2023 Inpatient Prospective Payment System final rule and proposed rules for the 2023 Outpatient Prospective Payment System and Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. This important webcast is now available on demand. Download it today at the Rack University Bookstore. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, our lead story this morning is about the potential for fraud and abuse associated with telehealth. And although telehealth, as we know it today, is relatively new and brought about by the pandemic, actually, as you're going to learn, telehealth goes back nearly, well, it goes back more than 100 years. So here now with an update on telehealth is Rack Monitor Investigator Reporter Edward M. Roach. He's coming to us from New York City. And good morning, Ed. So, Ed, what is new is actually old, right? That's right. Uh We've been experimenting with this for 122 years. So during the COVID public health emergency, rules were changed and allowed more Medicare telehealth. The objective was to stop the virus spreading between providers and patients and the community as a whole. But there's a downside. Healthcare is full of crooks. As they say on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. Reviewing enforcement actions makes exciting reading telemedicine company owner pleads guilty to fraud conspiracy, largest fraud operations ever prosecuted in Georgia. Telemedicine company charged for $784 million fraud, illegal kickback, and tax evasion scheme. Two Montana nurse practitioners admit telemedicine scheme to defraud Medicare of more than $18 million. Doctor pleads guilty to obstructing telemedicine investigation. Federal jury convicts pharmacy owner for role in 174 million prescription fraud scheme, 64 million nationwide kickback fraud scheme. MD pays $87,000 and is excluded for eight years for receiving remuneration in exchange for ordering DME. Patient recruiter convicted in $2.8 million scheme. Some telehealth companies paid practitioners to write prescriptions for medically unnecessary durable medical equipment, genetic testing, wound care items, or medications. Black markets sell bundles of prescriptions, you know, sort of like the mortgage crisis. Some recruit actors to pose as patients for unknowing practitioners, backed up with fake medical charts. It's sort of like when people say no one really landed on the moon, it was done in a studio. Anesthesiologists indicted for 7 million telemedicine fraud conspiracy, and on and on and on. So the COVID emergency has enabled telehealth to grow. The rules were set to expire October 13th, but seemingly have been extended until March next year, further extensions being considered. My personal view is they should be permanent. Public health care has experimented with telehealth for more than a century. The 1924 show about a radio doctor 1940s Pennsylvania X-ray images sent over the telephone line, 1950s tele-radio system built in 
Montreal, uh, excuse me, teleradiology system. 1970s, Native Americans saw their x-rays, electrocardiographs, and medical records sent over microwaves. So what can we expect? Advances in information technology, telecommunications, artificial intelligence, robotics, and virtual reality will compel change. Robotic telesurgery with no geographical limits. Autonomous surgical robots dispatched to accidents perform minor surgical and medical first aid operations. Home and hospice care with androids performing less skilled actions, you know, cleanup, dispensing of medications, help in locomotion, bed rolls, dressing, feeding, bathing. Avatars as lifelong caregivers and friends for psychiatric counseling. Virtual reality and virtual worlds aid patient recovery and treatment. Augmented reality reduces training costs. Medicare billing no longer relies on coding or human judgment, authorizations, instant and irrevocable, and so on. AI as a third party in doctor's meeting. The labor-intensive nature of healthcare billing becomes obsolete. Billions of bureaucrats become redundant. Healthcare costs plummet. The beginning of a bright new future for practitioners and fraudsters. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ed, very much. Ed Roach is a rack monitor and investigative reporter, and he was reporting our lead story this morning from New York City. David, we have uh, some questions and some comments. So, David, we've got a couple of minutes. Let's address those. You bet. So, Tiffany, as you previewed, would you be so kind as to uh, reply to Elisa's comment? Sure. One of the things I just want to make sure I read out what she had posted for everyone So what she had proposed was actually an additional option to our question where I gave kind of an either-or scenario. And she was saying, could we use the coding methodology but have a consistent set of elements that need to be reported as well? So using the same Z codes or additional elements that we would add to our coding administrative codes that we submit that could include the specificity of ethnicity, ethnicity, as well as, I'm guessing, the other Z codes around housing, homelessness, other issues that we see. What she had posed is that without that, the finalized AHRQ set of specifications, the Z codes are largely noise at the moment um, because typically, as we know, there's no billing um, or mandatory requirement around it. And she was concerned that if we added another methodology of quality reporting, that would be additional burdensome over the health system. So thank you very much for your comment, Alicia. I appreciate that. Thanks, Tiffany. Chuck, I think that's all we've got time for. I will turn it back to you. That is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And a special thanks for our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Tiffany Ferguson, Dr. Arnold Hirsch, and Rack Monitor investigative reporter Edward Ed Roach, who reported our lead story. And remember, folks, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.